We are on week number two of a teaching series, and we're doing three uh, hard and fast weeks. And, and let me just say tonight, I'm going to do a slight recap of last week because we had some technical issues and it didn't get recorded. Plus, if you are here and you're new, um, what I'm going to share tonight is going to make more sense to you, okay? Um, the name of this series is Look Up. Worship in the real world. How many of you remember what it was that Moses said when he came back into Egypt? What it was that he said to Pharaoh? Anybody know? Say it out loud if you know it. Come on. They make songs about it. Moses went to Egypt land. Let my people go. Right? Come on. Everybody knows. He said, let my people go. Did you know that that's not the end of the sentence, though? If you look at Exodus 9, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Now, you think... That God would say, go tell Pharaoh, I said, let my people go. Because I am sick and tired of them bringing whips down on the backs of my people. Right? Because we remember what he said over in chapter 6. He said, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel. I have um, seen the oppression of my people. I've seen all that. And so you'd think, man, it seems like that is what he would say. And listen, God did want the chains to come off. He did want freedom deliverance for his people. But in God's system of existing, and I want you to write this down, in God's system of existing, victory is a byproduct of worship. In fact, this is the sermon. This is the takeaway for tonight. Victory is a byproduct of worship. Freedom, deliverance, victory is a byproduct of of worship, And if you really started connecting the dots here, and I hope that's really kind of what we do um, through this series is connect some dots, you realize that Israel had to come out of Egypt to worship God. It was his idea, first of all. It was his idea. He's the one that came up with the plan. They had to come out of Egypt. God could have, uh, I don't know, slipped like a slingshot up under their pillow or some sort of sword, and they could have woken up in the middle of the night and taken out the Egyptians, you know, taken over the city. There was more... Israelites than there were Egyptians. They could have done that. They could have said, you know what? You are going to be our slaves and put them to work building the pyramids. I don't need, would the Israelites have even built pyramids? Would they have started, would it have been more square? That was a joke. Y'all can follow with me. <laughs> the point is, is that God called them out of Egypt to worship. And the reason is, is because there was something in the air in Egypt. Egypt had this thing going on with evil. It was overrun. It would have been just this continual reminder, this continual influence for Israel to try to learn how to worship God in Egypt. Because that life, those foreign gods, all that stuff is all they had ever known. Think about that. They were enslaved for how many years? How many years, class? 400 years. So this generation that was alive, even if they were like really old, they wouldn't have been old enough to know anything else except for maybe a little, of, a little of worship or a little bit of Jehovah God, a little bit of that. But for the most part, all they knew 
was the culture, the influence. All they knew were the practices of the Egyptians. And God wanted to establish something else. And he called them out so that what he was going to establish wouldn't mix. Everybody say mix. mix. So it wouldn't mix with what they had learned in Egypt. And what they had learned in Egypt was dead. It was foreign gods, foreign idols. It was worshiping useless things, things that were dead. The people of God needed to learn how to worship him and him alone. What was the first commandment? Yeah. Thou shalt have no other gods before you. Again, that was the goal. Egypt is a picture of, listen to me, a picture of the world, a system of existing that didn't acknowledge God. What did Moses say? Let my people go so that they may worship me. What was Pharaoh's response? I don't know your God. And the implication is that I don't care to know your God. Isn't that right? Last week I said that Babylon, I talked about Babylon, I said that Babylon typifies a world system that is hostile to God. When I say typifies, I just mean it's, it's like a world system. It's a picture of, it's, a, um, it's the imagery of or the likeness of a system that is hostile to God. All through the Old Testament, the name Babylon is associated with uh, organized idolatry. The name of Babylon is, is associated with blasphemy. If you don't know what blasphemy is, blasphemy is saying or doing something that's offensive to the living God, the one true and living God, uh, associated with the persecution of God's people. I read something to you, I'll read it again, that the Jewish people, to the Jewish people, Babylon became the essence of all evil. Now you got to pick this up, y'all with me? Became the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people. And then get this, I read this in a commentary, the lasting type or shadow or pointing or picture of Sin, carnality, which is another way of saying worldliness, lust, and greed. So Babylon, even more so than Egypt, represents a system, a way of living, a way of existing that opposes the way God calls his followers to exist. Isn't that right? And remember we talked about the Babylonian captivity, the time in Israel's history when Jews were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Remember we talked about this? Again, some of it's a recap if you were here last week, but it's new maybe if you are visiting or you weren't here or whatever. They were in captivity with Babylon that during the Babylonian exile, there's different ways of calling it, naming it, for quite a while. And this was a time, listen to me, when the hearts of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, God's people, would have been put to the test. Would their worldly way of existing, Babylon's worldly way of existing, be the end of a God-worshipping people? Would there be anyone who would dare to reject Babylon's oppression, but more importantly, Babylon's influence? And then I think the greatest question is, would God show himself faithful to meet them there, to deliver them even? And of course, we know the answers to those questions, don't we? Are you all with me? Are we awake? Okay. We know the answer to those questions, right? We know that um, Israel survived. The people of Israel, God's people survived. Duh, we know that. We also know that there were some who uh, would not bow down to Babylon. There was probably a whole crew. We know about Daniel. We talked about Daniel last week. 
that he wouldn't eat of the, uh, the defiled food that had been offered up to idols. We um, talked about how he was praying and they wouldn't let him pray to his God. He said, you can kill me if you want to. So they threw him in the lion's den. We know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that um, they would not bow down and worship the big giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar. We know the stories. And probably more than, there's way more than that that was responded to worshiping only the true and living God. But we read about these. So we know that it's true. There were some that would not bow to Babylon. And we know the answer to that last question. Would God show himself faithful? Would God deliver? Absolutely. God delivered them in their trial. But I want you to pick up what I just said. God delivered them in their trial. We want God to deliver us from our trial, but God delivered them in their trial. This is going to be up on the screen, but I want you to write this down. I want you to see this, study this out. Egypt shows us how God acquired us from the world. Okay. With a mighty hand and outstretched arms, he reached in and he saved us. That's a picture of that. That whole thing, the Exodus story is a picture of how God rescues his people out of sin, death, and the grave. Don't have time to, to unpack all that. Babylon shows us how God keeps us in the world. That whole season of history, everything that went down is God's way of saying, I can keep you even in the midst of an ungodly system. Last week I said that Babylon is mentioned 287 times in Scripture. That's more than any other city except Jerusalem. Why is that? Because these are our two choices. Live the world's way or live God's way. I mean, I don't know if Christians anymore break it down that simply. There's one of two ways. And you see this all over Scripture. You see it in Jesus' teaching. You see it everywhere. There's one of two ways. There's no middle. It's either the world's way or it's the Lord's way. Is that right? Am I making that up? Or does that sound familiar with things that you've learned over the years? Sometimes we're not putting into practice everything that we learn. And that's really what this series, uh, series is about worshiping in the real world. How does this go down? How does this play out? You guys remember when Jesus was in the garden? We talked about this last week, the night before he would be taken out of the world. This is in John 17. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. You can reference and I'll read it. The night before Jesus was taken out of this world, crucified, died for our sins. It says, but now I come to you, Jesus talking to the Father, And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in them. And he's talking about that his disciples would have the fullness of joy, the fullness of life, really. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not part of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So what did he ask? Not that they would be taken out of the world, but they would be protected from the evil one. They are not of the world, as not, uh, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Some of your versions say, make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified or made holy by your truth. If you were here last week, my sermon in a sentence was, God wants us to live a full life inside of an empty world. And by empty world, I mean a system of living 
existing, that doesn't just happen to be different from the way God calls us to live and move and exist. Its sole purpose is to rob from us, to steal from us the fullness out of our lives. Are you with me? Paul said in Colossians 2, in Christ we have been brought to the fullness. Not my words. Those are the Apostle Paul's words. We love Apostle Paul. Look what he said. In Christ we have been brought to fullness. That means I can have joy. I can have peace. I can be content with who I am, where I'm at, and what I'm doing. That's God's will for our life. Say, God's will for my life is fullness. Have you ever thought about what Satan's will for your life is, though? Jesus lays it out there. He breaks it down. John 10, 10. The thief has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they, us, may have life, life to the full, fullness of life. It says it in however your translation says it. It's a bunch of different ways. So think about this. God's will for our life is that we be full. Satan's will for our life is that we be the very opposite. What is the opposite of full? Empty. God's will for our life is that we be full. Satan's will for our life is that we be empty. And the system that he uses to bring us to that point is empty. He uses emptiness to make us empty. Does that resonate with you? You guys understand what I'm saying? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan is the God of this world. Okay, he's the God of this world. That's a lowercase g, okay? But he's the God of this world. Jesus said the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. He says, but you, don't, you no longer belong to the world and that's why it hates you. That's what Jesus said. That's why it hates you. You don't belong to the world. In Matthew 18, he says, woe to the world. Not like woe, but like woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. But think about that. Woe to the world. Woe to the world. Something's going to happen to the world. What? Woe to everyone on earth who was putting little blocks on the sidewalks to trip up little kids. Is that what he's talking about? And woe to the world because it's become stumbling blocks. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. Write this down. The system of this world is designed to take our attention off of the living God. The system that we live in is designed to take our attention off of the living God. Turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. I told you last week we were going to be in Joshua chapter 7. Did anybody read Joshua chapter 7 last week? Yes. For real? Yes, no, God bless you all. Joshua chapter 7. Now, what I'm going to do to this um, is kind of what I do sometimes whenever I study the word for myself, but also when I preach is I'll break it down into little sections. Sometimes I'll even draw brackets around a section to, to indicate what I'm going to talk about or what I want to emphasize in that area. So you can, you're welcome to draw little brackets over these sections. Section 1 is basically just Joshua 7, verse 1. So you can draw a little bracket or whatever around that. Look what it says. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully, in regard to the things under the ban. Some of your versions may say something to the effect of, uh, but Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. So let me explain what this band is real quick. We know the story. We know that God called Israel out of Egypt, but not just out of Egypt. He called them to something. Melissa says that a lot of times when she's teaching or when she's emphasizing. It's not just what God called us out of. It's what God calls us to. Isn't that right? We know that he called Israel to what? The promised land. 
the promised land. And we, that's a picture of heaven and all that kind of stuff. But you know what it's also a picture of? A full life. Flowing with milk and honey. I'm completely satisfied. Completely content. So he called them out of Egypt into the fullness of life. Just like he called us out of the world so that we would experience the... Come on. Right? Come on, y'all got to get with it. Somebody get a hanky, give me an amen, you know, even a little dance, whatever you got to do. The curly shuffle. Come on. Okay, that'll work. That'll get me to the next step. So think about it. Called him out to the promised land, to the promised But he told them, I have given you this land. Isn't that what he said? I've given you this land, but you're going to have to take the cities. I've given you the land. You will have to take the the cities. Now, if you know the story, you know that Jericho was the first city they had to take, right? And we're all familiar. If you're not familiar with it, you got to read it. If not, you can refer to Joshi and the Big Wall with Veggie Tales. It's a great uh, telling of the story, especially if you like green peas, okay? Joshi and the Big Wall. So I won't go into all that, but what I will say is that God told them over in, in Joshua chapter 6, I think verse 13 maybe, He told them, now look, this is going to be the first of the cities that you're going to take. Okay, And he said, you're going to have lots of spoils from all these cities, lots of bounty, lots of things that you're going to get. But everything from this city belongs to me. That's what he said. He said, I want you to get rid of everything. Burn everything. Get rid of everything. The, and this is sad, I know, but the men, the women, the children, the animals, everything. He said, only keep the valuable stuff, the gold, the silver, and those things. Keep those for my treasury. Those will be consecrated things or set apart things, things that are dedicated. Those are the things that were under the ban. You guys understand? You were banned from, from um, um, partaking of those things, okay? Now listen, we talk about this a lot. Um, um, this is a picture of the first and the best, right? This would be the first of the spoils, right? Because the first fruits always belong to God. The first and best, the first fruits, always belong to God. If you haven't gotten that into your system of living for God, when you do, you're going you're gonna to see the uh, heavens open for you. Okay, I'm just telling you right now, all right? First and best. So if this is about the first and best, if this is about first fruits, then ultimately the heart of this matter is worship. The heart of the matter here is worship. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Achan took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. I want to explain something real quick. In the original language, anger can mean anger and burned can mean anger. It doesn't make any sense that it would say, therefore, the anger of the Lord angered against the sons of Israel. A lot of times, words can have multiple meanings. I'm going to tell you the multiple meanings. In the end, it's the same result. But anger can literally be countenance, face, or even nostrils. Okay? Burned literally means, what was it? Distressed. So what you could, see, you could say is, because of what happened, God's face was like, oh, what just happened? Almost like when someone does something to offend you, something that is blasphemous to your being. You're just like, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you got one of those noses that, you know, flares. Because that's what it could also mean. The, the um, nostrils of the Lord flared up. 
Okay, so I say that because there's this weird teaching, this weird mindset that God of the Old Testament is angry and will cut you. But the God of the New Testament is love. And so you can do anything you want. That's, that's not true. He is love all the way through. His love never fails and never runs out and never gives up on me. But there are times when our behavior can flare up his nostrils. Isn't that right? That's what this is saying. I just wanted to stop and say that. So God was obviously displeased. Let me get something else out of the way here. His nostrils were flared up at the sons of Israel. Wait a minute. Achan's the one that did it. And we'll talk about that more. But Achan's the one that did it. Why was he flared up at the whole nation or sons of Israel? Because one man's sin affected the entire nation. Scripture says that though we are many, many members, we are one body in Christ Jesus. And you can write this down. Our failure affects everyone's fullness. You can take that to the bank. How many of you felt the fullness of Christ in you depleted at times because of the failure of someone else? There are times when my wife and my kids are not walking in the fullness of life because of my failures. Am I the only dad that might fit that bill? Am I the only dad that fits that bill? Probably not. It's true that our failures will affect everyone's fullness. Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, if any member suffers, all the members suffer along with it. But if any member is honored, which is the better route, right? All the members are honored or rejoice with it. So the way that we live will add to or take away from those around us. Let that mean something, you guys. Let that mean something. Love God, love others. (laughs) It all goes full circle, right? So that's the first section. Let's look at section two, verses two through five. You can put a bracket around it if you want to. I'm going to read it quickly. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, or I. I like to pronounce it I. It just is easier. Which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up, spied out I, They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up. Do not make all these people toil up there. There's just not that many people up there. So about three thousand men went uh, went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. In other words, when they engaged in battle, they began to retreat. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them down. In other words, kicked their tail, probably took some names. So, and it says, so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. In other words, they did not know what just hit them and they were completely discouraged. Not expecting that one bit. What had happened was, this is the second city that they had to take. They took Jericho. Jericho, we know how that went. Walls came down. They went around it, shouted, walls came down. They took the city and they, what did they, what did they have to do? You know, yell. So who's, who, who did this for them? God did this. They come to the second city. Most theologians will tell you that, that at that time, that city wasn't that big. And if you kind of did the ratio thing, they probably, because of the size of their city, they probably would have had about 2000 fighting soldiers. Well, what did the guys come back and say, dude, let's don't send everybody up there. It's going to be a waste of time. What you can do is send 2,000. We'll do this one-on-one. If you want to send three, you could just to be ahead of the game. Of course, Joshua's like, you know, we probably ought to send three. He says he sent three. So they sent 3,000 men up there. 
and they got their tail kicked. Okay, so keep that in mind. Should have been easy. Smallest, I think, of all the cities they had to conquer. Should have been the easiest. But they got the tail kicked. Okay, so that's section two. Let's look at section three. Section three is going to be six through nine. Then Joshua tore his clothes, which was a custom of, 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 of being exasperated and grieving. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. So he decided to go into the presence of God, right? Oh, probably should have already done that, right? I'll talk about that in a minute. Until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their head, which is gross, but that's what they would do. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorite? I'm being dramatic for the effect. To destroy us? And I'll I'll whimper a little bit. If only... You know, if only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and they will cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, what was Joshua doing here? His reaction. (laughs) He goes before the Lord again. He should have already done that. But he complains that God had changed his mind. That his intent had changed. Obviously, God, you've changed your mind. And blames it on God. Did you see that? Put it off on God. What will you do for your great name? And look at section 4. Section 4 is uh, 10 through 16. So verse 10, it says, So the Lord said to Joshua, Boy, get up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? In other words, I am not the one that changed my mind. You are the ones that changed Isn't that right? Look what he says. You have sinned. He he basically says, you've cheated on me. You've transgressed my covenant. He says, you have stolen things from me because things from the, um, that were set apart or dedicated for the treasury had been stolen. And he said that you tried to get away with it. And we'll look at that in a minute. We'll look at that in a minute. Okay. What I want to do is I want to jump. We're going to look some more at section four, but I want to jump to section five. Can we do that? Section 5, well, um, really is 16 through the end. Um, actually, 16, we'll just say starting in 16. Who knows where we'll end? But we're going to start in verse 19. Before we jump into section 5, you have to know at the end of section 4, God gives Joshua a process of finding out who the culprit was, what had happened, why. He gives them a process. And so that's where we pick up in verse 19. You with me? So Joshua said to Achan, we already knew that this is who did it. God gives him the process of finding out. Joshua finds out, goes to Achan and says, my son, I implore you. That's a fancy pants way of saying, I beg you, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give him praise. In other words, I don't know what you've been doing, but you haven't been worshiping. Can you return to that heart? And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it. From me, So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. You ready? Are you ready? When I saw among the spoils a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, And a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them. And I took them. 
And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Now look, look at this and, and, and see if you see these four words. Achan said, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. He saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. Saw, coveted, took, hid. Where have you heard that pattern before? It's all over the Bible, but we know where it started. I saw that the fruit was good and pleasurable or desirable to eat, and so I took it. And then what did they do? They hid. Same pattern, same course of this world. Achan fell for it. What did he see? What did he covet? What did he take? What did he hide? It says that he took, he saw a beautiful mantle from Shinar. And some of you, you know, you're reading that and you may have thought it was pronounced Shiner. You know, and you thought, well, I might have hit one of those too, you know. But it was not Shiner. It's Shinar. Okay. And some of your translations may actually have um, Babylonian robe. I saw a Babylonian robe. The mantle of Shinar, Shinar was, was the ancient city or area of Babylon. And it was a robe. And not just a robe. Most scholars believe because of the way, um, the way it's described that it was a kingly robe. So I saw, coveted, took and hid a kingly robe of Babylon. And of course, a bunch of gold and a bunch of silver as well. Most scholars believe that this robe probably belonged to the ruler of Jericho. Makes sense, doesn't it? If it's a kingly robe. Now, who did we just learn was the God of this world? The king of this world? The king of the world? Not Leonardo DiCaprio. The king of the world! Who? Satan. And what did we just learn about Babylon? That Babylon is the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people, and the lasting type of sin, carnality, worldliness, lust, and greed. And this is what Achan chose to wrap himself with. The ways of the world. Do you see what he chose? Do you see what he saw, coveted, took, and hid? The ways of the world. A system, an existence. Remember what Paul said? You used to follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan. You used to follow the course of this world. Jesus said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, the Father is not his focus. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said, the worries, if the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, they will choke the word. They will choke out the word, I think some translations say. They choke out the word in your life. Look back at section four. I'm almost done. Section 4, starting in verse 11. 
we'll read some of this that we didn't read before. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have stolen, and they have deceived. But look what it says right here. Moreover, everybody say, moreover. I don't know what that, I should have looked that up, what that translates. But it sounds like he's saying, it was bad what you did, but worse than that, they have also put them among their own things. They have put them, worldly things, among their own things. Remember at the beginning we were talking about mixing it in? How God doesn't want it mixed in. That's why he brought them out of Egypt. Because of the propensity that they had to go back to what they knew. God's called them out, called us out. Achan mixed in the world with the Lord. What are some of the things that we mix in? I mean, we don't have to go into the list, but think about what are the things in the world that we mix in to our walk with God? Things that we take and love and joy, we see, we covet, we want, and we take them and we bring them in and try to hide it on some level, the significance or the, the true value that we have in our heart for it, but we mix it in to this system of following God in His ways. We try to live, move, and exist with a little of that mixed in. And everybody has their own list. I don't have to go there. Look what he says next. Therefore, because you've done that, you've mixed it in, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Did you hear that? The sons of Israel, because of that, the, the, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Did you know this is the only city Israel lost to? It's the only one. And they learned a great lesson, obviously. <laughs> but this is the only one, the smallest, and it's the only one that they lost to. Why? Because victory is a product of worship. And Achan had clearly got off focus. And his off-focusness affected the whole nation. This is a big deal. Look what it says next. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Now, please understand what he's saying here. God said, I will never leave or forsake you. Jesus said it, in fact. I will never leave or forsake you. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if Jesus is saying, I will never leave you or abandon you, then who is he representing when he says that? The Father. So God would never leave or abandon them. That is not what he is saying. This promise is not of abandonment, but of defeat. (laughs) I won't leave you, but I'm not going to let you win. I'm not going to leave you, but your life may not quite be as full. Victory is a byproduct of worship. Remember what Jesus said, if the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, they will choke out the word. And here's what he says at the end, and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, you will be robbed of the fullness of life. Okay, now here's where, here's the rubber meets the road question. Are you ready? You may be thinking this. How do I live in a world that is full of things that are designed to take my focus off the Father? How do I worship in the real world? Isn't that what we're trying to figure out? Because this is all around us. We live in Babylon, don't we? No, but yes. No, but yeah. According to the system of existing that it is exemplified through Scripture. 
right? How do we do this? Because is it eating me up? Is it eating you guys up? Sometimes I feel like I'm like a devil or something. What I think, what I look at, what I consider. Am I crazy? No, I'm like Daniel in Babylon trying to figure out what do I do today? Because I know I want to pray. I know I need to pray. But if I pray, they will kill me. And we aren't going to be killed. We're not to that point yet. But you guys, we will wimp out if we think that we will be made fun of. Am I wrong? Am I teaching the wrong crowd? I'm talking to myself. There are times where I will wimp out. I'm a tough guy. But I'll wimp out. How do I live in a world that is full of things that are designed to take my focus off the world? Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Joshua 7, verse 15. It shall be that the one not who took the things under the ban, but it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban. Did you guys see that? It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned. Write this down. If you become consumed with the things of the world, they will consume you. We cannot be taken with these things. You know what the first thing that pops into my head? Y'all ready? Brace yourselves. Get you ready for your nostrils to flare up. Is this thing evil? Is this thing evil? Aside from the fact that it has an apple with a bite out of it. I'm just saying. Now, if you don't have an iPhone, you're okay. If it's some other sort of smartphone, it's all good. But this one's... No, is this an evil object? Is this an evil... I'll even go as far as to say, is this under the ban? No. Is it okay to text, email, look stuff up? But how many people are taken with it? They're taken with it. They cannot stop. I admit, there are times where I will take this to the bathroom with me. I mean, that's kind of weird, actually. Am I the only one that has went into the bathroom with my phone? Raise your hand if you are willing. Weston, thank you. Marvin, come on, raise your hand if you are a phone pooper. Listen, the point isn't that this is evil. The point is, is that we can become taken with these things. Listen to what happens when we become taken. Let me tell you what happens to me. I'm focused on this text I got, or I'm focused on this email, or sending it, or reading it, or whatever, and my kid's pulling on my leg. Hey, Dad, can you come do this? Hang on, baby. Can you, hang on just a minute, Dad. He's got to send this text. Really, Dad, he's got to? He's got to? If I got to, then I'm taken with this thing. And that's just one example. Now listen, I'm not asking anybody to do anything drastic other than consider... Aiken's issue. He was taken with the things under the ban. What is the opposite of full? What is the opposite of victory? Some of you may feel defeated. Some of you may feel empty. Ask yourself, what am I taken with? And and don't pull any stops. Make the list, check it twice. What am I taking with? It could be something like a phone. It could be a relationship that is totally, it's not evil. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not good for you right now. It could be anything, right? 
could be your work. It could be your job. It could be anything. You know what it is for me? I thought about this today, and I'll just be honest with, with you. You know what it is for me sometimes, lately, what I'm finding more than anything, the big Aiken in my life, the big distraction? Do you know Aiken means troubler? Actually, and it's, a car is the, is the area that this happened in, the little area, which means trouble. So some, some people believe that Aiken wasn't really his name, but that he was called Aiken from that point on because this happened in the car. That's free. But you know what I find myself taken with? Two things. This church and this phone. Helping you, meeting your needs, bringing you messages, making sure you're happy, making sure you're fed. Is that bad? Is that under the band? Is that under the band? No, it's my job and my calling and my desire. But sometimes it goes too far. Sometimes I'm taken with it. And that takes away from my wife. It takes away from my kids. It takes away from my friendships. It takes away from my very soul. And this is connected to that. Maybe this is connected to your other takenness. How do I not become taken with the things of the world? Can we end with this? Joshua 5, 13. Listen. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, he was there. He got there. He went there. And you remember, he's, him and Caleb are the ones all those years ago that saw what was in the land. He knew what was coming. These guys are big and they are mean. When, Joshua, when it came about that Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold. A man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua said, are you for us or for our enemies? And he said, no, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the Lord of hosts. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground or holy. And Joshua did so. How do I not become taken with the things of the world? Do what he did. Lift up your eyes. Look at the right thing. Go to the presence of the Lord. Find some holy ground. Look up. Lift up the name of the Lord. Worship him. Be in his presence. Call upon the name of the Lord for whatever it is that ails you, scares you, freaks you out. Do what Joshua did. Tonight we're going to take communion. And the way that we take communion is grab a piece of matzah bread and we dip it into the, the juice and then we go find a private place. Go find some holy ground where you can stand before the Lord and ask Him, is there anything in me? Like David said, is there any wicked way in me, Lord? Search my heart. Is there anything that I'm taken with? Show me. And I've always felt like communion is one of those ways that we can reestablish the covenant. Do you remember what he said? You have sinned and you have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded you. It's a great way to reestablish, if you will, the covenant, setting your focus back on the things of the Lord. Jesus said, do this to remember me. Remember who he is, what he did. Achan forgot something. He forgot Jericho, didn't he? Have you forgotten Jericho? Let's stand.